If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Ellie Cawthorne, staff writer on BBC History magazine. Before we begin, I want to tell you about a special offer we are running for podcast listeners where you can enjoy a one-month free trial to all the premium content on historyextra.com as well as a free edition of BBC History magazine for Apple and Android devices. Head to subscribe.historyextra.com forward slash podcast to find out more. And also, they were excessively in love. And that is also true. I mean, he had never been with a woman before. He was 35. She, of course, had never been with a man before. And the the whole thing excited them, opened their eyes up. They changed them utterly for a while. They didn't know what to do with it, except to embrace it, which they did, furiously. And then they couldn't handle how to organise it. That was Melvin Bragg talking about the 12th century love affair between Abelard and Eloise. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available across the globe in print and digital formats. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Today's interview is with Melvin Bragg, the renowned author and broadcaster who's a long-running presenter of In Our Time on BBC Radio 4. He's just released a new historical novel, which focuses on the tragic love affair in 12th century France between Peter Abelard and Eloise. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, met up with Melvin in his offices to discuss the novel and the history that informs it. So yes, obviously it's their relationship that's most well known, but I wonder if we could talk about them as individuals first, because Eloise was known as one of the greatest women in France of her time. Well... 
We don't know a great deal about Eloise's deep background. We know that she was brought up in this convent of Argentoy, which is quite near Paris, uh, that she was, she was moneyed, she had money. She didn't go there like the local girls who were whipped in to be nuns, whipped in is a cruel word, which are brought in to, who were brought in to be nuns, vocational nuns. She never wanted to be a nun. She said she had not, a, she'd not got a vocation. Um, so she was immured in that place. She didn't go away on holidays to family because as far as she knew, she didn't have any family except her uncle, in inverted commas, in Paris, Uncle Fulbert. Now, mo modern research, and the man who's guided me most is a man called uh, Professor Clancy, the emeritus professor of medieval history. And he, th he thinks all this, uh, that uh, Fulbert was in fact her father. There's such attention he paid to her. It looked, but he, in a sense, if anybody went and visited her, it was he did that. So she was brought up there, and she developed a taste for and an enormous skill in Latin, in reading the pagan authors, or the classics, as she would call them, Ovid, and particularly Cicero, and even more especially, even more especially Seneca and so on. And quite soon on, uh, she, was con she was in communication with people in many parts of France, of learned people, about subjects to do with Latin, uh, and, and they were admiring her Latin style. So she became known quite early on in her life as the cleverest woman in France. Now, there has been a great dispute about her age. Some people said she was 17, and the idea of the old scholar and the young, you know, the young student became, uh, you know, the, taking advantage of the young student became something to get excited about. The odds are she was in her mid-20s, maybe even older. This is Clancy again, who's done re serious research on this. And so I put her at about 24 or 25. We don't know the exact date of her birth. <clears throat> so she's younger than him, but he was 35, and that's not much younger. And anyway, we're talking about a time when girls were betrothed at eight in aristocratic circles and so on, and married at 13 and 14. And, and so there we are. But it's her cleverness that marked her out. Uh, and she did come to Paris. Uh, her uncle uh, brought her to Paris. And then a lot of fiction takes over. She met, she did come to Paris. She did meet Abelard. She did keep studying. But then I direct fiction of, of how she got in, which, how she reacted to Abelard, although the letters say a lot about that, uh, the fiction takes over. But the background is a very clever woman, in, uh, and people took her up with the greatest eminence. Uh, uh, distinguished scholars, heads of abbeys and all that, wrote to her, um, a clever, an extraordinarily clever person who was also a woman. And that was, the, and and she became. I, I try not to make it. I don't to be shouting uh, women's lib about it. But the fact is, she was determined to get the same sort of education as younger men of younger men than her had got at the great schools in Paris, particularly the school of Abelard. She was interested in philosophy and classics. And Abelard was a uh, was extremely famous when she. By the time she got to Paris, he was thirty five, as he says in his magnificent autobiographical fragment. Uh, he was the greatest philosopher in the world, as he says about himself. He's got no problem about saying that. Uh, but a lot of people thought he was as well. He'd introduced Aristotle into his discussions and his writings on the scriptures and saying the scriptures must be subject to analysis in this way. They not, must not be just handed down. Reason must be applied to them. And if you apply reason to them, they become better and purer. And he was taking on an immense church establishment that was getting more and more centralized and more and more tormented about its authority and therefore stricter and stricter. So she was there, they met, and then the consequence of that was this enormous love affair. 
I don't think there's much more known about her than what I've said. There's more, a bit more detail, but not much. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you mentioned there um, so many mysteries remain, and in your book you have Fulbert as her dad, her, her father, um, and I, I'm interested to know what the the role that fiction plays in looking into, in exploring these figures in terms of the unknowns about their life. Well, it plays quite a big part, and you've got to be careful because they met, Amelie and Eloise, they had conversations. Nobody knows what they were. Uh, their letters, you know from their letters what they said to each other in letters. You're that fantastic resource of their letters when they write to each other. But that's what they say in their letters. And, and I don't, uh, or in Amelie's confession. Now, we're in t- double tricky waters here. Their letters are often hyperbolic because that was the nature of the time. The letters are often citing authorities because that was the way you wrote at the time. You you didn't say, I think this. You say, as St. Jerome said, and as Seneca said, and as Cicero said. And then you, uh, three paragraphs now and you bet down, you venture your own agreement with that. That was the style and the manner of it if you were a great scholar. And she wanted to prove she was a great scholar. So she was uh, extremely attached to this way of, of discussion and extraordinarily learned and easy in bringing up quotes from rare commentaries, Isidore, Gregory, and so on. She'd bring those up. And he was a scholar, so he would he, he did that all the time. So you have the letters, but what happened when they were alone? What happened um, when he seduced her? If he did seduce yes, he did seduce her. What happened then? What happened when they were on the run in Brittany, uh, which is where he came from? He was a noble, from a noble family in Brittany. What happened when he smuggled her back to Argentoy? On the, on the boat as it took him down the river. What happened? What, well, we don't know. But what we have to, what I wanted to do was to imagine it, think hard about the characters and say, what would they have said? Where did that take them? What happened next was X. So on the way to X, they must have done uh, whatever the letter is before XW. They must have done these, these things to get there. Um, so that is fiction. That is, make, that is embodying it in a different way, imagining it in a different way. <clears throat> I wanted to do that. And he, to talk about him, he was the greatest scholar of his day. He's still thought of as a great scholar today. For philosophy, that's an amazing thing. Uh, Hundreds and hundreds of years on, Abelard still matters. Uh, He was turning over centuries and centuries of church learning on his own, attacking it. Very exposed position. The church was power. It's probably one of the most powerful uh, organizations over many peoples, over many cultures, over many years that there has ever been. They were ferocious in, in wanting, in, and then we are at the time when they tightened the screws of conformity. And they wanting young men to join of great ability, which is why they were backing these things. But Abelard was teaching these young men to be pagans, as they thought. He was loving Aristotle was thought of as a pagan, pagan writer, and therefore to be dismissed. These, what's this pagan doing talking about our sacred texts and so on? But Abelard was a brilliant man. And they had, the, the, in those days, the system of public jousting with words and not sort of a uh, hangover, as it were, no, an, an association, affinity with his jousting as a, he would have been had he been, he handed over his inheritance to his brother, had he been a knight and gone to the crusades, which his brother did and so on. So, so he, he'd won all those battles in public. And he published books, which people thought were stunning. And he'd become the head of the, the master and the master of the College of, uh, of uh, Notre Dame. It's all very confusing because the Cathedral Notre Dame was not built then. So I have to explain very quickly. Um, he'd done all that. Um, and he was extraordinary. And he was, and he wrote, we're told, and there's evidence for this, that he wrote 
popular songs which were sung in the streets and so on. Um, there was no stopping him. And then he writes this piece. He writes this piece 13 years after they have parted uh, about his life, one of the greatest pieces in medieval literature, uh, autobiographical pieces. So they didn't go in for autobiography. You've St. Augustine, then you've bits and this, then you've Abelard's piece. My theory is that he wrote it 13 years later to prove that he'd been terrible, uh, to prove that he'd been a sinner, to prove that everything he'd done was awful, to prove that he was a bear, thoroughly, because he, the way they believed in excess and what he was saying to God, that was a letter to, it was supposed to be to a friend. We don't know who it was to. Nobody knows who it was to. Uh, and we, nobody knows how Eloise got her hands on it. But he was actually, that was a letter to God saying, I am the most miserable, miserable sinner and, I, and I'm, please forgive me. I did these terrible things. I did these terrible things. I was boastful. I was vain. I took it back. And he's, I think that's what the tone of it is. Uh, and a lot of people take it at its face value and think, what a terrible man he was. He's saying he's a terrible man, but it's an unreliable text. He wants God to know that he knows how terrible it is. When Catholics went into confession, Catholics of his, of his, because he was a Catholic, of his intensity, they would say, I've done the most terrible thing. Now, by the standards of many people, it wasn't all that, not what he did with Halloween, with other things they do, and all that terrible, but they say it's terrible because they want God to forgive them. So that was the basis on which I took that. Uh, and uh, and then you had all sorts of strange things. They they parted for thirteen years, or did they? What happened then? You had to make that up, uh, and so on. So there's the making up thing. I know that a lot of people don't understand the twelfth century. I didn't myself. I read history at university, but I didn't spend much time on that. And I read a lot about it. It's a world with a circumference. Everything comes from God. And if you didn't believe in God in, a, in the Christian community, you kept your mouth shut or your tongue cut out, you know, you, or, you kept, or you kept very quiet about it. Abelard believed that everything emanated from and related back to God. There's no problem. So when Eloise said they were so comfortable with it that, they, that Eloise thought she could call God cruel. She would, as it were, never speak to him again. But she was perfectly sure that there would be a corner for her in heaven. So it was that relationship which is... Uh, she was, as it were, in the party. She could criticise the party as, like a, as much as she wanted because she was so deeply in the party. She was deeply part of it. So was he. So, so he's, he's bound with that. And she is bound. In, I thought, no, I don't think, I mean, talk about people not understanding what's going on. So how do I make that? Do I do long explanatory notes? In, uh, and then I just had this idea of having a companion story. And the second story, we investigate the first so in one stage, I thought of calling it the quest for Eloise and Abelard. These two, the writer of the book and one of his, and his daughter, who is 23, 24, who comes across to Paris because she's out of a job and she, he invites her. He's finishing the book in Paris in his brother's flat. His brother's a, a reporter, has gone away, so it's in Paris. It's a nice place to do it, and he's, he's a single man by that time. He and his wife are split up. His daughter comes home. She has got a purpose, and her purpose is to find out what really happened in her father and mother's marriage, which they have never told her, really. And 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 she's she's very upset. So she's there to, and he he says, well, while you're here, why don't you read what I'm writing, in order that he can have something to say to her. So it's a father daughter loving relationship, what am I going to do, sit and have a drink, but he doesn't drink much every day, or give her something to do, as it were. 
and also to explain through her to readers what is going on and the value of what's going on. And there are two different reasons. She thinks that Abelard's a total shit from the beginning. And he's saying, just hold on. I'm trying to understand him, not judge him. So what if you think that way? What if you think, this is what was happening then. I try not to pedantic, be pedantic about it, but I don't think I am. And just, well, when he did that, this is what, this was the society he was in. Do you realize the odds he was against? Do you realize this man's books were burned twice in public? His books were burned. He was banned from here, there, and every, hunted down. He was almost stoned to death. We're talking big, serious matters. You've got to understand that. That formed his character. And also, he knew he was good. He knew he was better than all the others. He kept beating them in. So I didn't want you to explain him. And I wanted to explain some way of explaining her intense spirituality, even though she, she thought God was cruel and she didn't, she had no vocation, she didn't want to become a nun, but she was an intentionally spiritual uh, woman. Uh, and when he first uh, said he loved her, uh, she, and she, she asked what it meant, and they talk about it early on in the book, and she said she knows what it means. It means that I will, I will be, obey you, because she'd been brought up to obedience. I will obey you, I will never desert you, I will never... I'll do everything you want me to do. And then that apply begins in the early stages, applies erotically. And then in the later stages, applies in the things she does that he tells her to do, asks her to do, tells her to do, which she knows are going to be um, bad for their relationship. Because he was terrible at making decisions. Almost every decision he made was wrong. He didn't know, I mean, he's one of those people, and I knew people like that. And I've done, I was so consumed by his own mind you find it with some physicists and that when they say the absent-minded physicists it's not not just a cliche they're just they're thinking so hard and they forget things and and he he solved things abelard's great thing was that he solved problems he tried to solve every problem in the bible which is fantastic and he did so he would solve problems like that and you think it was solved oh i will take you to i will take you into dress as a nun and i'll take you to see my parent my, my my parents in Brittany. Well, that was a form of abduction. Never occurred to him that he that he was abducting her, and that their fa her family could, being a that time it was, could have exercised a sort of uh, a blood feud on him, which they thought of doing. Except his Breton um, relatives would have had a blood feud against uh, uh, Eloise. So he just didn't think. Then when he took her to Argonteuil after they were married. Um, uh, he didn't think what the consequences of that would be. He always saw everything very quickly because that's what he did in his life. And that was, uh, he got, he kept, and she kept telling him, this won't work. And like he decided they should get married. And she says wonderful speeches about how marriages are not for her, how it'll destroy their relationship, how she doesn't want to be his wife. She wants to be his friend. Uh, and if the uh, Emperor Augustus himself offered her, offered to be, Asked her to be his wife, she'd rather be Peter Abelard's whore than the emperor's wife. And she says these things in the letters. Um, and she, she's because she's allied herself with him. He is the man. I don't know whether she loves the philosopher or the man. They're both together. She, she loved philosophy. So you have this very um, intense, and I think that's why the Middle Ages and centuries afterwards took to it. It was so, so spiritual, intense, and so lasting. People elided the fact they'd been apart from for, the, for 13 years apart. Uh, and and another thing is that it's the belief system. I mean, when 
he said, you must go to back to and, 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 and become, take up a vocation. She said, I don't believe in it. He said, but you must do it because then you'll become a bride of Christ. Now to Abelard, in, in a sense, in his simplicity, that solved everything. Because a bride of Christ meant that you're, you were near Christ, you were nearer Christ than anybody else, than any monk, than any archbishop, you were a bride of Christ. And so that would make her safe, her soul would be safe. She could pray for his soul, she thought was damaged, and uh, almost irretrievable, if she prayed for his soul. And you had these great prayer sites all over Europe. I mean, a third of the population was engaged in prayer, and they believed it. They just chanting the prayers, like you, people go down Oxford Street doing Hare Krishna all the time. They prayer after prayer after prayer, and the more prayers you would, you would, you would, you would get through purgatory quickly and go. And so he thought he was not doing her a favor, but making her safe. I think there's also a little bit of sexual protection involved there, which I added, completely fictional on my part, because he was besotted with her. And then they parted, and that's complicated because. He goes away, then he comes back, and then he's publicly arraigned and nearly stoned, and his work is burnt. And what is it? he invents the word theology. He turns to theology, goes back and writes it again, twice as long. Um, uh, and he, he sets up a he sets up as a hermit in the forest because he wants his so wants to go. What happens? I don't know if it's hundred scores of wealthy young men from all over Europe come to him again, build their own little huts, and he because he can teach them there. Uh, he is he is that amazing. Uh, at the time, thought, thought to be that amazing. He is he's also although the Paris and the French hierarchy of clergy hated him, he was their star turn. Uh, that you know they were getting rich through him, and also they were moving towards having university, and then people would come because of Abelard. Up on the left bank, they were thinking of the Abing University there. And, uh, so he's there. And then they, in the, what happens in the end, not in the, well, I think it's a sort of end, is that in the letters they divide into love letters, which are powerful and arguments and rage and reason. And then what she calls letters of direction, where he's sending her letters about sermons. I think those are the love letters. I think that that is exactly what she wanted from the very beginning. She said, I don't want to be your lover. Well, she didn't say that. I don't want to be your wife. I want to be your amica. In fact, I thought of calling it amica for a long time, your friend. In the end, that's what it is. And she's relentless with him. And he's writing books, the biggest philosophy books at the time. And then she says, I want 93 sermons. He writes back, he says, he says it's better than this. No good at writing sermons, but here's the best I can do. So he takes her. Then she reads back and says, a lot of the saints don't have their own hymns. Could you write hymns for all the saints who don't have hymns? Or we don't have a history of the, we don't have a history of the place of nuns in the country. It's this massive history. The bigger, for her, it's taking God knows how long. And so she's relentless with him. And, and that's what she wants. She wants that friendship, that, that conversation through writing, through scholarship, which he himself said at the beginning is what he wanted. But, he, he went another way as well. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. Um, I wonder where you um, fall on the thought that this extensive um, collection of letters that from which we know um, about their relationship may have been 
I'm not sure what word to use, but not, not staged or, or fabricated, but it, they were aware of creating their own chronicle through those letters. Oh, I think they were very self-conscious people, yes, very. I mean, you, you heard, were, did they think these letters were going to be published? No. I don't think that was part of it. Um, I think he's, he, he, he would send out the letter about his life, uh, historical history of my calamities, to, to a friend or friends, however. That's all mysterious about where he sent it to. We know and Eloise got it. Um, um, but no, I think the letters, they, they, they lived in that hyperbolic state. Uh, uh, and also they were excessively in love. And that is also true. I mean, he had never been with a woman before. He was 35. She'd, of course, never been with a man before. And the, the whole thing excited them, opened their eyes up. And they changed them utterly for a while. They didn't know what to do with it, except to embrace it, which they did, furiously. And then he, they couldn't handle how to organise it. And he made mistake after mistake, just in organising what they did, whether they should get married, whether, things like that. He got it wrong all the time. Could we talk a little about um, how the, the terrible punishment that was um, uh, carried out against him affected him and, and his work and his attitude towards well, when uh, he had taken her to Brittany and uh, they'd had, they had a child, her father, uh, uh, egged on by his advisers, her father was a serious, uh, was an important canon in, in, the, in the Notre Dame, the church of St. Etienne, but he was not, a, and his friends uh, urged him to take a blood thing, but he wouldn't do that, he daren't do that, or he decided not to. And what he did do was arrange for a castration, a famous castration, Abelard was castrated, uh, and um, being the, ni- the nightly man, he said it didn't hurt because they, they, these things didn't matter if you were, if you were a believer and be a knight. Like, no, it didn't hurt. The things that hurt you most, you say, didn't hurt. Um, anyway, he was castrated. There was a furore in Paris. The people who did it were, were castrated and blinded, uh, except... Um, Fulbert had organised it, got away with it, he barricaded himself in the cloisters. They, they gathered round him, the cannons, took his livelihood away, his furniture, then gave it him back a year later. Um, but it affected him. Well, he was, he was worried about whether he would be... Because people... Well, what happened to a eunuch? Immediately came to his mind all the stuff about eunuchs in, in, the, in Leviticus and so on. We said... Uh, even if animals have their uh, testicles crushed, they must not be allowed into the temple, and so on and so forth. And he, he and was there any place for eunuchs in heaven? And he, and he, at first he couldn't find any, and then he looked up and found things that were said. But that was the first thing. Uh, second thing, he thought that his um, that his uh, his force as a public speaker might be gone. It seems he did a bit at first, but not so. But he was ashamed of it. And people wrote damning indictments of it in my print warn, which was uh, by Rosalind, his a former teacher, saying what a terrible man he was going and uh, uh, taking advantage of this young woman living in her, her father's, her uncle's house and instead of teaching her the classics, taught her how to fornicate and so on. This was public stuff. So There's a lot of shame he had to endure. Um, and um, so that changed him. And I think that drove drove him away from her in the sense that I'm going to contaminate her. I've got to get her away from her. I mean, I must put her somewhere where she's safe from the, and from me, from my reputation now. Uh, and I think I don't emphasise that too much in the book, but it's obvious. 
So, yes, it changed him. I think it did change Except in one thing, what never changed was his dedication to philosophy. Under all the extremes, he's still doing the work. I mean, masses of work. He wrote a book about conversation between an Arab, a Jew, and a Christian. He wrote book after book. Um, so that was what he was about. I mean, he, except for that fairly brief disruption, eruption in his body and his mind about uh, enemies, where he actually to work out what love is. He doesn't know what love is, and he tries to work it out. And there's two stages where I'm, I'm, I'm in, he's lying in bed trying to work out what it is because he can't articulate it. Well, that, that is not, not the way he is. He's got to be able to articulate it. So he works through what it is, caring for other people. It's, what is it? And, it, and I, I was reading them again last night, actually, and I guess it's not a bad expression of what it is. So, but that's fiction. And then he knows what it is. But after that, there's nothing more to do with feelings. He's away from her. He thinks she's safe. But the moment she writes to her, he writes back immediately. The moment she's in trouble, whether she is kicked out of her nunnery, she's by then head of the nunnery, even though she's hypocritical about it. She practices hypocrisy. She's quite plain about that. Uh, she's better than all the other nuns, but she's pretending. Uh, and But she's head of, obviously, head of the convent in, in a few years then breeds other con, uh, other convents all over the... She's thrown out. They, they wander around this group of nuns with her. Some of them peel off to other places. There's a core stage with her, and they don't know what to do. He, his place in the forest that has been built, he just gives it to her like that. As soon as he hears, he comes from where he's then in, made another mistake by going to Brittany, to this god-awful place uh, as an abbot. He isn't an abbot. He doesn't know how to be an abbot, of course. He just went there to get out of the way. And he comes across, he gives, she's not there. He gives her this place, he builds it up. He writes to the Pope. The Pope replies, the Pope makes it legitimate. He gets in touch with the local lander. I mean, he's a, when he wants to move, because they're all, they all, God, I've had a letter from Avalon. He wants me to do this little thing, like saying, he's giving the paraclete. Of course he must. So he gets a letter back. And so he gives that all to her. And then when she writes him first, her first letter, saying, basically, why did you not address your confession to me? Uh, he replies immediately, and away it goes. Then everything she asks him for, he gives her right away. It's a remarkable story and a re remarkable relationship, obviously, as many listeners will know. But is there an aspect of it particularly that drew you? Was it Abelard? Was it, what, what was it that drew you particularly to this 12th century story? I don't quite know. I came across the story like the, like the writer in the book when I was 15. I was doing, it was in, mentioned in a book called The Cloister and the Heart, the book by Charles Reed, which we did for O level. And I've no idea why a working class boy in the north of England in the 1950s should be drawn to this. Uh, but I was. I, I just there was an image of. I haven't gone back to it actually, in case I'm wrong. <laughs> I can't it. These two wandering around in the garden, people saying, "Ah, oh, that's Abelard Nellie. She is this, and he is that." And they're talking great philosophy. And I thought, wouldn't that be wonderful to walk around in the garden with somebody talking great philosophy? Maybe I thought that. Maybe I didn't think that. It doesn't matter what I thought. The the image stayed. Then I came across the letters about 15 years later, and I read them. And I thought, mm. then I kept them. And for many years, we're talking about, talking about uh, 60 years, I was thinking, I don't know, maybe I should do something about this. And eventually I thought, well, I'll, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it now. You know, the sun's going through the thing. And so I did. And then I found this double way to do it, the double story. One story and another story investigating the first story. 
as the ID and I was investigating it, but I didn't want to make that puddingy. I think the way I do it makes it un-puddingy. That was Melvin Bragg. Love Without End, A Story of Eloise and Abelard is out now in the UK, published by Scepter. In the US, it's due to be released in the autumn by Arcade. Well, that's about it for today, but don't forget to check out our special offer for podcast listeners at subscribe.historyextra.com forward slash podcast. We'll be back on Thursday with a discussion about the Tudor State and Tudor Church. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. You can catch up with past episodes on historyextra.com, where you'll also find thousands of articles on all different aspects of history, as well as our special subscriber-only area, the library. 